Morning. Good to see the hearty ones who braved the dry pavement to make it out here. <laughs> Just kidding. If you stayed at home and you're watching online, I hope your hot cocoa is good. But it's good to see you guys. Um, you know, Jesus Christ is the most important person. The, he has been the most talked about, the most debated, the most written about human in all of history. And that's no question about that, by the way. More songs have been sung to him, more books written about him than anyone else. And the reason is, of course, is because, again, he is the most important human in all of human history. By far, the most important human in all of human history. Listen to the words of uh, Jaroslav Pelkin. He's, a, he's an author. He says, regardless of 181, now catch this, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for more than 20 centuries. If it were possible, with some sort of supermagnet, to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much more would be left? It is from his birth that most of the human race dates its calendars. It is by his name that millions curse. Is that not true? You never hear everybody cursing Buddha. You ever notice that? Or Joseph Smith. It's always Jesus. It's from his birth that the most of the human race dates its calendars. It's by his name that millions curse, and it's in his name that millions pray. And you know, he's right, of course. Jesus has been the center of human history, and he's been the focus of humanity uh, ever since his birth, death, burial, and resurrection. And if we're going to be intellectually honest with human history, if we're going to be intellectually honest with the rest of humanity, and if we're going to be intellectually honest with ourselves, we must deal with this man from Nazareth. And thankfully, we don't have to speculate about him. We don't have to postulate regarding what he taught or how he viewed himself. We don't have to offer uninformed opinions because as we look at his word and we behold him, as we behold his glory, as we see him for who he really is and what he really taught and how he lived and the way in which he loved, how he carried out his life and his mission and his purpose, we, we, don't, we don't have to offer uninformed opinions. And in John's gospel, there are seven scenes spread throughout the book where Jesus stands up and he says, this is who I am. Seven scenes where he stands up and he says, this is what I'm about. He declares who he is and what he's really all about. And so for the next seven weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to push pause on our study in the book of Corinthians, and we're going to prepare our hearts and our minds for Easter and for the resurrection by looking at this, these seven statements, the seven I am statements that Jesus makes. He'll say, I am, and then he'll make a statement, and it will describe who he is and what his mission is really all about. He gives a metaphor that will describe his personhood and his mission and how we should respond to what he's just said. And so for, for the next several weeks, this is what we're going to be doing. We're going to be meditating upon these statements. And the fifth statement, which, which will land on Easter, is when Jesus makes maybe the most important of the statements where he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Anybody who believes in me will never die. And so these these seven statements are incredibly important for at least two reasons. One is, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that as we behold the glory of Christ, as we behold the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. That is, as we look at the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we behold his life, as we look at his love for humanity and his mission to rescue it, as we meditate upon his personhood, 
that the Spirit will use all of those things to continue to grow us into Christ-likeness through the power of the Holy Spirit. As we continue to behold Christ, His Spirit will work in us to transform us so that we're better able to represent Christ to a world that desperately needs to know Him. So that's the first reason this, this series is important, as, because as we behold Him, we become more like Him. But then, secondly, as I mentioned, um, this, these next several weeks will lead us up to and through Easter. And you watch as you approach Easter, you will, as you go through checkout stands, you will see images, well, artists' renderings of what they believe Jesus to be like on covers of magazines. And he'll be talked about on CNN, on the, on, on the History Channel. You watch. I, w- I went through Target the other night with some friends of ours in Trio. We were out late Friday night at 10 p.m. Target. That's hot date in your 40s. I don't know if you noticed that. I'm at Target on a Friday night. For, and it, we actually considered it the date. Um, and I'm going through the checkout line, and there's this rendering of Jesus on the Time magazine. And it says, it says, um, it said, is he more than just a sage? And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? Here we are in February, and they're already printing the material. You watch. As we get closer to Easter, you'll see him more and more on the checkout stands. You'll see him on CNN. There'll be discussions on CNN. There'll be discussions on the History Channel. There'll be programs on whether or not we can really know anything about Jesus. Whether he was anything more than a wise sage and a traveling rabbi. And so for these next seven weeks, they're vitally important because as the culture asks the question, can we really know anything about Jesus? You'll be able to say, oh yeah, he told us everything you need to know. And let me tell you some of what he told me. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the first of Jesus's I am statements. And it's found in John's gospel, chapter six. Go ahead and turn there. And if you're new to the Bible, John's gospel is in the New Testament. So the second half of the scriptures. And it's... uh, Matthew, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And John's gospel is right before the book of Acts. Now, as you're turning, let me just give you a little bit of, a little bit of background uh, to bring you up to speed with this part of Jesus' life. He is about uh, probably two and a half years, two, two and a half years into his public ministry. And he is incredibly popular at this point. Amongst, with the people of Israel, he's incredibly popular. Everywhere he goes, large crowds follow because they've seen him perform miracles. There is this kind of this groundswell of discussion about who is this Jesus? Could he possibly be the Messiah? They've seen him perform miracles. They've seen him perform miracles of healing people. Um, people who were blind, he has given sight to. People who were lame, he's enabled them to walk. He's done these really incredibly powerful miracles, and they're all signs pointing to something, and we'll see another one today. And then when he taught, people would come away just astonished, saying he taught with one who has authority. It's not like the rabbis who had derivative authority. He taught with the original stuff. He taught with such authority, and he loved and cared for he loved and cared for people with such a selfless degree that people were drawn to him, just fascinated by him. And in the first part of John chapter 6, Jesus has gone up to Bethsaida, which is in the northern part of Israel, near the Sea of Galilee. And if you've taken one of the Israel trips, you know right where it's at. And he's up there to get alone with his disciples because, again, the crowds have been kind of following him everywhere he's gone. But word starts to spread that Jesus is there. And so, again, the crowds follow him, and the, and the day goes long, and evening is approaching. And everybody's getting hungry because there's no subway. There's no Mickey D's. You can't just pull off and get some fast food. Everybody's really getting, starting to get hungry. And so Jesus decides he's going to test one of his disciples. And so he says to Philip, where are we going to get bread to feed all these people? And Philip, he looks out at this vast throng of people. And he says, there's no way. There's just no possible way. He said, even if we had eight months worth of salary, we couldn't buy enough just to give everybody a nibble. And then another one of the disciples, Andrew, steps up and he says, you know what? I saw a guy over there. I saw a boy who had five barley loaves and two fish. 
Now imagine if you're one of the disciples and you hear Andrew make this statement. There's probably, we'll, we'll see in a second, Jesus says there's 5,000 men, which are heads of households. That's how they counted people, by heads of households, which means there's anywhere from fifteen to 20,000 people there. If you're looking at a vast throng of people, and one of the disciples says there's a guy over there with five barley loaves and two fish, what would go through your mind? Would you not think, this guy's an idiot. I can't believe Jesus chose him to be one of the disciples. And Peter is Andrew's brother. Peter's the older brother of Andrew. What do you think an older brother's thinking in this moment? My stupid kid brother embarrassing me all over again. Everywhere I go, my dumb kid brother follows me, and here I am. We're stuck with him. But Jesus says, okay, bring him to me. Bring me the fish, bring, bring me the loaves, bring me the fish. And Immediately, all the disciples' mouths just dropped open, like, what in the world is he going to do? And so Jesus, after giving thanks, he multiplies this food right before their eyes. He gives thanks, and he just starts passing out all these baskets. He hands all his disciples these baskets of fish and bread. And again, John tells us 5,000 men were there. And again, they counted by heads of households. So fifteen to 20,000 people are there. And he just keeps passing it all out. Now, it's another one of those miracles. Well, what are these miracles about? Have you ever thought about that? Why does Jesus do these type of miracles? Because if it was just simply to show his, his naked power, he could have done something more impressive. He could have just started floating up in the air and, I don't know, like land in Rome and with a flick fight off all the tigers. He could have done something else. He could have done something that really showed his power. So why does he do these type of things? Well, what all of the miracles are within the scriptures, and you, this is just a side note, free of charge, side note, not part of the main deal. But all of these miracles, what they are is they're signposts of what the kingdom will be like. Jesus comes into the world. Jesus creates the world. Remember, he's the agent of creation. We screw it up, creation goes bad. Sin, death, sickness comes into it. All of the miracles that Jesus does are signposts of what his kingdom will be like. He's given another glimpse. When he looks out at the world and he says, this is not the world I created. There is not supposed to be any stomachs that are bloated because they're hungry. There's not to be any kids that are dying. There's not to be any sickness. There's not to be any death. So he comes and he does these miracles, and it's a signpost that this is what my kingdom will be like when you trust me. The kingdom in the next age, there will not be hunger. There will not be death. It's, and, and people look at the miracles and they say, well, it's a suspension of the natural order. And it's not that at all. What it actually is, it's a restoration of the natural order. Because this is how creation was meant to function in Eden. There was no sickness, there was no death, there was no disease. And so Jesus is restoring, he's giving a signpost saying, when you trust me, you can be sure that the next age will be like this. I'm alleviating suffering in the present, and I'm giving a picture of what the next age is going to be like. And so he starts passing out, you put yourself back in the scene, he just starts passing out all these, these, uh, these baskets of fish and chips, essentially. He just starts passing them out. And again, 5,000 people, they ate their fill. And then for 15,000 people, they eat their fill, and then they all get their fill, so much so that there's baskets left over. And immediately, when the people are witnessing this, this bread being just passed out, passed out, passed out, immediately the people start thinking back to Moses, which is why, look at verse 14 in chapter 6. They look at what's taking place, and they say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They look at Jesus and they think, this is the second Moses. This is the one that Moses predicted back in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And in a sense, they're right because Jesus is a true and better Moses. And in a sense, they're right because Jesus is delivering his people through a new exodus, through the cross. But they're also missing who he really is. And what the sign really signified. Because we read in verse 15, 
That they, look at verse 15. Perceiving then that they, were, uh, that they were about to come and take him by force to make him a king, Jesus again withdrew to the mountain by himself. They want to come and they want to make him a king. They look at Jesus and they think, this is great. We, we could make this guy a king right now and this will be great for all of us. Why? Well, because he had just provided them with 75% of economic relief. Uh, First century Palestine, it, it, it cost you about 75% of your uh, earnings to put food on the table. And Jesus had just given them a day that they can keep 75% of their income. Let me, tell, let me ask you something. An election is coming up. If somebody came along and said, I will ease your tax burden by 75%, wouldn't you tend to listen to that person? You tend to. You would. We would. Um, and this is exactly what they're doing. They're looking at this thing, and this is a huge economic relief for us. He's given them a day that they can keep 75% of their income. And they're looking at him as a great economic provider. That's what they see in Jesus right now. He's a great economic provider. And Jesus knows us. He knows what they're thinking. And so he withdraws again to a mountainside to get away from the people. And so he sends his disciples. What he does, he sends his disciples into a boat to go to the other side of the lake. And then what happens, he doesn't go with them. But in the middle of the night, what happens is he, um, he decides to join them. And rather than walking around the lake, because that would take a little bit more time, he just decides he's going to walk straight through the lake. And so he walks on the water, he meets the guys out in the boat, takes a little midnight stroll, meets them out on the lake. It's raging. He calms it down. They freak out, <laughs> as you would too. They freak out. He gets in the boat. Everything calms down. They, they are on the other side. And so the next morning what happens is the crowds wake up. And they realize that Jesus and his disciples are on the other side of the lake. And they begin to look for Jesus. Why? Because they're hungry. They're hungry. And he's an economic provider. And when they realize he's not on their side of the lake, they think, well, we've got to go find him. And so they get into the boat, and they start paddling across seven miles across the lake in order to search for Jesus, which is where we're going to pick up the scene. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. Now we're told that Jesus is in Capernaum, and, we, and if you look at the very last verse in verse 59, we find out that he's in a synagogue. So he's, he's made his way across the lake in Capernaum, in a synagogue, and this discourse begins to take place. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs. You're seeking me not because the, the signs um, brought you to faith in me. Because miracles never bring anybody to faith in Christ. He says, you're seeking me not because of the signs and what they pointed to. That's not why you're coming here. You're coming here because you ate your fill of the loaves. He says, he doesn't really answer their question per se, but he discerns their motive. And he says, you're seeking me for the wrong reasons. Can you actually seek Jesus for the wrong reasons? You sure can. Yeah. Now, he may use those reasons, which he will here, as a springboard to teach you, to bring you to faith. But you can't seek him for the wrong reasons. And he says, you're coming here, um, you're, you're seeking me, not because what the feeding pointed to and you got it, but because you want your stomachs filled again. You want the economic relief of not having to pay another day for yourself. You're coming to me not because of who I really am. You're coming to me because of what you think you can get out of me. That's what they're coming to him for. And so he knows they're hungry. And so what he's going to do is he's going to take their daily physical hunger, something that they can put a feeling to, and he's going to connect it to a deeper spiritual hunger that's untapped still. And so what he's going to do, verses 27 through 34, he's going to draw them from, from thinking about their material needs, their known material needs, to their unknown spiritual needs. That's what he's going to do. Look at verse 27. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes. And remember, they've just rowed a boat six or seven miles. 
So they're probably tired. They're probably hungry. He says, don't, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So he looks out at this throng of people and he tells them, you're working for that which can sustain physical life. That's what you're working for right now. He says, but I'm offering you nourishment, a deeper nourishment that will not just sustain life, but will impart eternal life. That's what I'm offering to you. And they get hung up on the word work. And so in verse 28, they ask, well, what what must we do? Look at verse 28. What must we do to be doing the works of God? They say, tell us. Tell us what God requires and we'll do it. We'll perform it. Which indicates that they're still thinking on a physical level, right? Um, They're saying, what do we got to do to obtain this food that will endure? And Jesus says, verse 29, this is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he has sent. That's it. That's the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Jesus doesn't give them a list of things they got to do. He doesn't tell them you got to go do a deeds of mercy. He doesn't lay uh, the 613 laws that the rabbis prescribed upon them. He doesn't give them all of these things. He doesn't give them some religious program that they got to climb up some spiritual ladder in order to find acceptance from God, to make themselves acceptable to God. No, no, no. He says, all you need to do, what you really need to do is simply to believe in me. Now listen, friends, maybe you're here today and you're quite curious about the Christian faith. You, maybe you thought it was about doing a bunch of things, cleaning up your life, getting things in order, being religious, having great religious discipline. Notice that that's not what Jesus says. He says spiritual life isn't something you earn by your efforts. It doesn't come about through religious discipline, but rather it's bestowed upon you. His love is bestowed upon you through belief in Christ. That's it. So it's not something you do. It's not something you earn. It's something you're given. And you got to remember that the gospel is always not something you earn, but something you're given. So Jesus tells them the only work they need to do is to believe in him. And they respond, verse 30, they said to him, then what sign, they're going back to the miracles, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So th- these Jewish guys in the synagogue, they're looking at Jesus and saying, wait a second, you're, you're essentially saying you're superior to Moses. And if you want us to believe that, then you're going to have to prove it. You're going to have to do some work that's somehow greater than Moses, than what Moses did by surpassing the, the, the manna in the wilderness. Man, Moses fed our fathers in the wilderness. What sign, what power can you do that will demonstrate that, that will cause us to believe in you. And Jesus says, verse 32, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, Give us this bread always. They're still thinking on a physical level. And they're thinking, where can we get this bread so that we don't have to work for it? So that we don't have to earn it? So that we don't have to pay for it and spend 75% of our income? And this is where Jesus drops the hammer on these guys. And look at what he says, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now look at this statement. This is the first of his I am statements. And here he says, here he is saying, I am the bread of life. I am the true and better manna from God. And I'm the only one 
who will nourish your souls. I'm the only one who will satisfy you at your deepest level and who will sustain you in this life and in the age to come. He makes this radical statement that he's actually the provision from God, from heaven. Just like the man in the wilderness that, that sustained people, Jesus is declaring himself to be the true and better manna from God. And he will sustain his people. And then he says, the second part of verse 35, look at what he says. He says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So just as good physical food and drink sustain physical life, what he's saying is, so Jesus is the real food and drink. And he will sustain and nourish his people spiritually forever. Now that doesn't mean there doesn't need to be continued, uh, continued dependence upon him. Doesn't mean there doesn't need to be a continued feeding, a continued nourishment from him. But what it does mean is that the core emptiness that humanity has and that humanity has been searching for ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, that initial core hunger, Jesus satisfies. He meets it. And, so, and, and we'll come back to that thought, that he satisfies our core hunger. So he makes this radical declarative statement that he's the bread of life, that he's the manna sent from God. And then he makes this paradoxical statement. Look at verse 37, but you've got to catch it. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, notice that statement because it is paradoxical. Jesus says, at work right now, wherever Jesus is presented, is both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God is sovereign, and yet humans are responsible. The first half of verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's divine sovereignty. God is at work uh, calling people to belong to Jesus. That's divine sovereignty. But then the second half of the verse and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So there's also human responsibility at work here. So he makes this paradoxical statement that affirms these twin truths that stand side by side. That God is sovereign and humanity is responsible. And both of these are affirmed. Look at verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. And then verse 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have, should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Now listen, in your theology, you, you need to affirm both of these things. God is sovereignly at work drawing people to Jesus, but humans are, resp are responsible for responding to Jesus. Does that make sense? Both of those are things are true. Well, how does it work? I have no idea. Absolutely no idea. Deuteronomy chapter 29, 29. It says the, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that he has revealed belong to us and to our children forever. But the scriptures affirm behind our choice, behind our choice to respond to Christ lies the mysterious invisible work of the Father who all along was drawing us to Christ. And it's our prayer and it's our hope, it's our expectation this morning that the Father right now is at work drawing people to Christ. He's at, at work right now by the work of the Holy Spirit drawing people to his Son. And then at some point, as the Spirit draws you and as the Spirit prompts you, you'll respond to it. So Jesus makes this declarative announcement. I am the bread of life. And then he makes this paradoxical statement that at work right now, anywhere that Jesus is presented, is divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And then he makes this absolutely stunning promise. And that is that anyone and everyone who comes to him for salvation will find salvation. Anyone and everyone who comes to him in repentant faith will receive salvation. Look at what he says. Verse, uh, look at the second part of verse 38. He says, For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, 
not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He says, I am going to, well, back up a little bit more. Go to verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever, that's the, that's the phrase, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus says he won't reject anybody. He won't reject anybody who comes to him. Anybody who wants to come to Jesus for eternal life can come to him for eternal life. So you should never think to yourself, well, maybe I'm not chosen by God. No, you are. You should never think, well, I've done some things in my past that God can't forgive. No, that's not true. Have you done some things in your past that you can be forgiven of? You should be forgiven? Yeah. That you should maybe even feel a little bit of, be ashamed of? Sure. But that doesn't mean Christ won't forgive you. You should come, no matter what you've done. Because if you're trusting in Christ alone for salvation, not your religious discipline, not your religious works, but if you're trusting Christ alone for salvation and new life, he'll take you like that. So Jesus makes these amazing assertions. And look at how the Jews respond. Look at verse 41. <laughs> so the Jews grumbled about him. Just like their forefathers. The Jews grumbled about him because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. As it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. He quotes Isaiah. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Hmm. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. By the way, just note, um, Jesus spent quite a bit of time talking about his preexistence with the Father. He's already said, I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. Here he says, no one has seen the Father except he who was from the Father. He has seen the Father. He spends quite a bit of time talking about his pre-existence. He says this over and over and over again, which means Jesus is not a created being who came into existence like you and I did at, some, at the point of conception. That's not what, who he is. He's always existed as the second person of the Godhead in the opening of John's Gospel. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word, of course, skip down to verse 14 in John chapter 1, it's referring to Christ. So, and all of this means when somebody comes knocking at your door, and they want to tell you that Jesus was a created being, you can look him in the eye and very graciously say, no, that's not what Jesus actually taught. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take Jesus' word on this matter rather than yours. Because Jesus said he has always coexisted with the Father. Eternally, he's coexisting. He's not a created being. He goes on, verse 47. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Hmm. Whoever believes already is given in that moment eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So he contrasts the manna in the wilderness and his bread. He said, your fathers ate that bread and they died. They perish, but whoever eats this bread, whoever partakes of me, and whoever takes me in, they will live forever. He says, I'm the bread that is going to be given for the life of the world. And the Jews, what happens is, they continue to miss it. They just continue to miss it. They misapply Jesus' word, words. And so they start this intramural debate amongst them about what Jesus is saying. And so what Jesus does is he takes this metaphor of him being the bread of life and he pushes it as far as humanly possible. 
Now listen, when you read verses 52 through 55, you can't take these words literally. Because what he's doing is he's amplifying and he's extending what he said through the metaphor. And so look at what he says, verse 52. But you do need to see it. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And again, he's amplifying his metaphor. He's not saying this is what you need to do. He's, saying, he's amplifying this. He's saying he's pushing it as far as he possibly can so that they'll, they'll think about it. He's saying, I, I, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food. And my blood is true drink. He's telling these Jews in the synagogue that the only way that they can have eternal life. Now remember this because for a thousand years they have been taught, you need to keep the Torah. You need to do all of the religious things. You need to earn your righteousness. All of the 613 laws you need to fulfill. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not true. What you need and the only thing you need is to be nourished by me. You need to appropriate him by faith and partake of him. That's what he's saying. That's the only thing you need to do. Look at verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and, and I live because of the Father, so, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And we'll stop right there. So what Jesus is saying is that he's the word made flesh and whoever takes in him in will have eternal life. And he makes these, these statements all the way through. Over and over and over again, he says, I am the bread of life. This is who I am. And that metaphor, it describes three aspects of Jesus' work. So what does it tell us about Jesus? The first of his I am statements, here's what it says. It says, he alone is the one who will save and satisfy your soul. He alone is the one who will save and satisfy your soul. Jesus, over and over again, he compares his life to the manna in the wilderness. And then he says, the bread in that day, it postponed death, but that's all it did. The bread in this day gives forth life. Whoever takes me in will have eternal life. But there's, there's more than that. Because Jesus came not just to save your soul. He came to satisfy it at its deepest level. Well, where do you get that? Did you notice that Jesus did not say, I'm the kale of life? Did you notice that? He doesn't say, I'm the kale of life. He doesn't say, I'm the soup of life. I'm the salad of life. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm the bread of life. Praise God. Because you know, there's nothing that satisfies hunger like freshly baked bread. Is that not true? Do you remember what happened during the pandemic? All over the world, women started baking bread again. Homemade bread. You remember what else happened? Men started putting on weight like nothing else in the world. My cheeks went from here to out here because Tria was baking two loaves of bread every single day. And when a new loaf of bread popped out, that thing was getting consumed. There's nothing that satisfies it like that. And Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. He says, you want satisfaction? You want real satisfaction? Come to me and let me nourish your soul. Blaise Pascal, the famous French philosopher, and scientists, here's what he said. He says, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Christ Jesus. Now listen, he's right. And humanity has been searching 
and searching and searching and trying and trying and trying to satisfy our souls with all sorts of created things. Is that not true? It's why we're constantly on the hunt for the next thing, the next person, the next thing, whatever it may be, that we think is going to satisfy us. And yet it never does. Maybe it does for a season, but never a deep-seated soul satisfaction, which is, again, why humanity has always been on the hunt searching for the next thing. You were created for something more. You were created for more. And your soul will constantly be yearning until it comes to rest in the Creator Himself made known through Christ Jesus. So He's the bread of life, He says. Which means, well, let me ask you like this Is your soul hungry? Have you noticed in your life that you move from one thing to the next to the next? always thinking that the next thing is going to satisfy me, and it never does. If that describes you, and it describes a large percentage of Americans, if that describes you, what it means is you've got to take that heart yearning and ask yourself, well, what does this point to? Because if I'm constantly searching for the next thing that I think is going to nourish me, the next thing I think that's going to satisfy me, but it never does. I just move. I just move to the next thing. I'm on the hunt for the next thing that I think is going to satisfy me, but it never does. Well, you've got to take those yearnings, the feelings, the promptings, and say, well, that, that must be pointing to something beyond this world, which is exactly what it does. It's pointing you to Christ. And he's saying, I'm the bread of life. I'm the one who will satisfy your soul. I'm the one who will save and satisfy you. But here's the second thing it tells us. It tells us right here, he tells us, that he's the one who will secure your destiny forever. He will secure your destiny forever. Look again at verse 37. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You want to talk about security? Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Skip down to verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And again, look at verse 40. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Christian friend, here's what I want you to see and I want you to sense. (sighs) Because when life gets hard and things get thrown at you, our natural inclination is to think that Christ has forgotten about us or that maybe we're not all that secure in Christ. Here's what I want you to see in the sense that in Christ you are secure forever. Nothing can separate you from his love. Jesus says in John chapter 10, and we'll see it in a couple weeks, um, that nobody, that you can't be snatched out of his hand. Once you come to him in faith, you are secure in him forever. And the way to visualize it is think of a time when your kids were really, really young and you wanted to cross the street with them. What did you tell them to do? You told them to put their hand in yours Now, were they secure because their little hands were gripped on yours? Or were they secure because your hand was gripped on theirs? That's the way to visualize it. You're secure in Christ, not because you're holding on to him, but because God in the flesh is holding on to you, and there's nothing that can snatch you. There's nothing that can snatch you. You are completely secure in him forever. He's holding on to you forever. So we're secure, not because we're holding on to Jesus, but because he's holding on tightly to us, which enables us, when we know this at a heart level, not just a theoretical head knowledge, but at a heart level, what that does is it enables you when life throws you a curveball, when the doctor says it's cancer, when your spouse says it's over, when something else, your employer says we're done, hands you the pink slip. When your bodies start falling apart and they begin to go the way of the earth, and the way of the earth is down, I don't know if you've noticed, and all of our bodies, gravity takes hold at a certain age and it just starts pulling us up. When all of these things begin to happen, and they will, what it tells you, what your heart has to come back to again and again and again is, no, 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 it doesn't mean that I'm forgotten by God. It doesn't mean I'm out of God's will because I'm completely secure 
in Christ. And I'm going to be raised to new life in Christ. This is what it tells you. So Jesus is the bread of life who saves and satisfies us, who secures our destiny. But in order to do this, did you notice what he had to do? He has to sacrifice himself. He has to sacrifice himself completely. Look at verse 51. He says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So he says, I have to, in order for these things to come true, I have to sacrifice myself. Now notice the depth, though, of the sacrifice. Because it is both voluntary. He says, I will give. I will give. Meaning, he willingly sacrifices himself. So it's voluntary, but it's also vicarious. He says, I'm going to do this for the life of the world. Meaning, it's offered to anyone and everyone who will respond to him in faith. So it's both voluntary and vicarious. That's amazing. Well, why would he do it? Because of the love of the Father. It's the Father's love all the way through. And it's the Father's plan all the way through. And because Jesus is in lockstep with the Father and so in love with the Father, that he says, I will do this. You see it all the way through the text. All the way through the text, you see that Jesus' purposes are tied up in the Father's plan. Look at verse 38. I need you to see it. Look at what Jesus says. He says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me. So Jesus voluntarily and vicariously sacrifices himself because of the plan of the Father. And the plan of the Father is rooted in his love for you, for God so loved the world that he, uh, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Don't you see? <laughs> Don't you see, friend? The Father's plan is rooted in his love for the very people that rejected him. And Jesus says, I will willfully and I will joyfully fulfill the Father's plan and I will usher in the kingdom. That's, that's amazing. And this is really why we were gearing up for Easter because of these realities, all of these realities. Well, if this is true, if everything I just said is true, and it is, by the way, if what I said is just true, how should I respond? How should you respond? Well, three ways, and I'll close with this. Since Jesus is the bread of life who saves and satisfies our souls, who secures our destiny by sacrificing himself, how should you respond? Three ways. First one, personally. Personally. You personally have to eat. Have you noticed that? Eating is a very personal experience. I can't eat for you. Your parents can't eat for you. It's not a group event. We can all go out to dinner, sure, but the food has to go in your mouth. You can't eat by proxy. You simply can't do it. Eating is personal and it's transformational. If you don't eat physically, you will die. And the same is true spiritually, which is why the psalmist tells us in Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. So how should you respond? You should respond personally by coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. But then secondly, profoundly, profoundly, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom God has sent. What that means is you have to come to Christ. You have to come to Christ and admit that you've been seeking satisfaction in other created things. You have to admit to Christ you've been seeking satisfaction, you've been chasing other idols, things that give you meaning and purpose and validation. You've been seeking satisfaction. And you have to come to him and say, I have been seeking, other, I have been seeking satisfaction in other things other than you. But I'm going to let my full weight down on you. I'm going to trust that you and you alone can satisfy my soul hunger. And I'm going to live with you as my Lord and as my Savior. The one who saves me from my sins. Lordship means that your words and your ways shape my life. So you respond personally. You respond profoundly. And then lastly, you respond publicly. And that's in the waters of baptism, where you come to the waters and you say, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that Christ has forgiven me, and this is a demonstration of the new life within me. I'm going to 
bury my old life in the waters and be raised up as a new person. And lucky for you, if you're giving your life to Christ right now, we have a baptism coming up on Easter morning. So if you're giving your life to Christ, or you're rededicating your life to Christ this morning, plan on being water baptized and identify yourself with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and with the body of Christ. Amen? Once you stand, we'll, we'll pray and then we'll sing. Father, this bread of life discourse, it is a reminder that we have to take you in, all the way in to the depths of our being to let your word and your ways, your life, shape our life, become the center of our existence. And so, Father, I pray for anybody within this room or within the sound of my voice or watching online who have, has thought that Christianity is about following a bunch of rules, about doing better, working harder, that they would come to see and sense in their souls that it's really not about that at all. It's really about coming to you in repentant faith, putting genuine faith in the person of Jesus Christ, and trusting in you alone for, for, the, for the forgiveness of sins and for new life in your name. Please let your spirit press home those realities in our hearts. And Father, for those of us who have been Christians for a long time, one of the traps is that we can be forgiven of our sins and then think we've got to prove ourselves to you rather than just resting in your grace that you've given us. And so we pray that, especially in the weeks ahead as we approach resurrection morning, that we would come back to the simple but profound knowledge that in Christ nothing is earned, but everything is given. Your grace is given freely. New life is given freely. New purposes, new heart attitudes, all of these things are given to us in Christ, and we would live out of these realities well, Father. And for the times that we don't, and we will all screw it up from time to time, Father. So for the times that we don't, that we would be quick to repent and receive forgiveness again and again. So we thank you, Lord, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.